This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest is Dr. Joanne Lobato, who's a professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at San Diego State University. Joanne, thanks for being here. Thanks, Sam. I think that your podcast is a great contribution to the field, and I'm delighted to be a part of it. Well, I appreciate that very much. Um, we're going to be talking about Joanne's article uh, that was published in Volume 44 of the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. The article is titled, Students' Mathematical Noticing. Nice, simple, straightforward title. I like that. Before we get to the article, though, I actually want to back up and ask Joanne, uh, where did you do your graduate studies and what was the focus of your dissertation? So I graduated from UC Berkeley in the mid-90s, and uh, Alan Schoenfeld was my dissertation chair. Uh, Also on the committee were Jim Greeno and Rogers Hall, who also influenced my thinking. And I had been part of Allen's functions group, and at the time we were developing a um, curricular unit on linear functions, and that supported several dissertations um, out in a local school. And in that process, I got very interested in the transfer of learning and found that when I was looking at my data that the traditional mainstream cognitive perspective on transfer didn't seem adequate to account for my data. So I started working on an alternative perspective on transfer and then took the San Diego job soon after graduation and um, with a career grant that I got in the first year there, I worked on continuing to develop that, uh, an alternative framework on the transfer of learning that I ended up calling the actor-oriented transfer perspective. And even though the paper we're talking about today doesn't, mm-hmm. isn't framed in terms of transfer, it doesn't explicitly mention transfer, that was in the back of my thinking in um, terms of the design of the study. Okay. And so now bringing it up to date with uh, students' mathematical noticing, what is it that's really motivated you to focus on the noticing? Yeah, so it's a, there's actually a little history here. So um, back in 2003, my research team and I published a paper in Mathematical Thinking and Learning called Focusing Phenomena. And this was done with Amy Ellis and um, Ricardo Munoz. And what we had done was, this was, uh, again, work supported by the career grant. And uh, we had gone into a classroom that we thought that there would be productive transfer, meaning the generalization of learning, um, how students are um, the traditional way of thinking about it is how they're applying what they know and to, to novel situations. And we thought that a core plus classroom would be a great place to study um, the generalization of learning because the kids are exposed every day to these quantitatively rich situations. So we were in a classroom that was spending six weeks learning linear functions and we loved the classroom. The teacher was great, had a very respectful relationship with the students. We loved the students. We were very surprised when we conducted the interviews. And we we had taken the kids that we thought were in the best position to generalize their learning in productive ways. So these were the kids that were earning A's through C's, were doing very well in the class. And all seven of them, out of a class of about 30, treated slope as if it was a difference rather than a ratio. 
and not mm. just treated as a difference, treated it as strange differences like the difference of the x values of, of the scaling on a graph. You might expect that it would be the change of y values of the function, but they also looked at features of the, the, the scaling on the, on the graph. So we went about trying to account for how that happened because they were saying things that led us to believe that they were generalizing their experiences from the classroom. And in the process of trying to go back through all this classroom data and account for this strange story, this notion of focusing phenomena emerged. And at that time, it was really this idea of the environment. It could be the teacher, it could be the use of graphing calculators, um, things about the curricular sequence that were directing their attention towards certain mathematical features rather than others. So this was sort of the birth of the noticing idea. But what happened was I got a grant from NSF to, as a follow-up. This was through the um, role program at the time, which became Reese later. I had on my advisory panel uh, Anna Svard, Paul Cobb, and Jim Greeno, and they really didn't like the idea of focusing phenomena. And uh, so they, they, they felt that it was really embodying an assumption of things acting on kids rather than students being a part of what emerged. And so that really, for me, was sort of the birth of the focusing framework that I set forth in this uh, paper. Um, by the way, this paper was written with um, Charles Hohensi, who is now at the University of Delaware, and Bowdoin Roadhamel, who is also at SDSU. So we had to come up with a framework that accounted for the reflexive nature of what was happening, both students' contributions, student on student, not just students being acted upon. And uh, I'll say more about noticing in a minute, but we'll have the, what we're treating it as is really this um, information selection when you're bombarded with lots of di different information, different properties mathematically that you can attend to, what is it that becomes salient that you end up operating on? Mm -hmm. So really putting sorry students more in the agent role. Yeah, sorry for a long answer, but it actually had sort of a, tr a history to it. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and uh, I actually read that paper that you were referencing in my graduate studies. That's a really great paper. Right? So now it's, it's nice to really situate this one as a sort of intellectual follow-up to that. So you drew on cognitive science, you drew on linguistics to try to really get this full framework for student noticing. So I was wondering if you could tell us how yeah. those different perspectives help you get the full picture. Yeah, and again, there's sort of backstories on each of these. So okay. I was uh, really, it was my great pleasure to um, be a participant in a series of working conferences for researchers around design-based research that Eamon Kelly and Dick Lesh ran for a number of years. And, and at one of those, Dr. Bruce McCandless was there. And he's a cognitive neuroscientist. At the time, he was at the Sackler Institute in New York. And I later went and spent some time with him on my first sabbatical. And um, he had uh, gone, his dissertation advisor had been um, Posner, who did some you know, really groundbreaking work on attention in cognitive science and identified three different types of attention and then later found neural correlates of each of these. And I found this extremely helpful. So he looks at attention as being like paying attention, alerting, or orienting. So I might direct the gaze of my eyes towards a table versus a graph on the, on the bulletin board or on the blackboard. 
But what Bruce studied and what we thought we were studying in that earlier focusing phenomena work that he gave voice to for me was what Posner called executive tension, which is the biasing of certain information over others. And what really impressed me about Bruce's work is that his work in educational research had been in reading, not mathematics. Well, he'd done some really fascinating work. Um, one study was on teaching adults in artificial orthography. By that I mean, imagine that you have these little cards where there is a visual character for each word. Like cat might be represented with some curves and circles and a line, almost like a Chinese character. And he put these adults into two attentional treatments. One was a whole word group attentional treatment. So they would see a card, and then they would associate the word cat, say, with that picture. And then there was another group where cat would be decomposed into three symbols. Like the top part of the symbol might go with a ka, a middle part a, and the latter part t. And these adults had a training session for 20 minutes every day. And then they were tested, but in addition to recall, they were also tested on a transfer measure of reading new words. And the people in the whole word group had zero transfer. The people in the decompositional treatment, where there was a sort of graphene, phoneme connection, they had 100% transfer. They did very well. So I was very impressed with that, that he linked this attention focusing to the transfer of learning. So that, that really influenced my thinking in terms of thinking about, at the beginning I was calling it attention focusing. And then I did a symposium years ago with Dan Schwartz and um, Bruce McCandless for AERA. And Dan suggested that I use noticing to suggest that there's some kind of personal uptake or interpretation. Um, and I thought that that was a very useful suggestion and that's when we started using the word noticing. But I was also really influenced, um, I guess this was back in grad school, when I ran across Chuck Goodwin's work on professional noticing. I was really blown away by his account of that Rodney King trial of, uh, mm -hmm. for the four policemen and how that first trial had resulted in an acquittal. And that this really seemed to be a result of how a police expert got the jurors to view a video differently than the rest of us in the whole country viewed that video. And I think there was both this idea of information selection, but also there was an interpretation that was grounded in a sort of social organization of that noticing. And he um, posited particular ways of looking at discourse, which we in our framework called um, focusing interactions. And he looked in particular at an action that he called a coding scheme. I stayed away from that word because coding scheme in our math ed researcher register yeah. means something different. So I called it renaming. And what he did was he looked at how um, the policeman would freeze frame the video and then rename actions that Rodney King took or the policeman took in terms of um, terms in the register of working policemen, like each little movement of King calling that aggression, uh, and um, when the policeman kicked Rodney King, calling that a tool. And th that he posited that this really influenced the way that the jurors came to view that video. 
So kind of putting these ideas together, we were looking at noticing as the selection and interpretation of information when multiple sources of information compete for your attention. But we added one thing to it. And um, we use an example in the article of just considering a simple table of, you know, table very simple values. linear function, right? So mm -hmm. that you've got, say, um, a function of y equals 5x. And in the x column, say, you have 0, 1, 2, 3. And over on the right, you have 0, 5, 10, 15. We know from research that many kids don't even see the x's. They just look down the y columns and see a recursive pattern of, say, goes up by 5. But I've also interviewed kids where they think that it's not a linear function unless those x's are lined up by 1's. So it has to look mm. like something like negative 3, negative 2, negative 1, 0, 1, 2, 3, or it's not a linear function. So, and also kids can look across the table. But we realized that it, this can't just be a perceptual phenomena because imagine that you looked at, say, the values of 2 and 10. I could form an additive comparison of 8 and then focus my attention on that, or I could form a multiplicative comparison that the 10 is 5 times as great as a 2 and focus on that. So we included that these objects that kids are attending to could also be conceptual in nature. And that was an adaptation from Goodwin, since his work was focused primarily on video, and then he's got examples with archaeologists, um, how they come to see colors in dirt and name those colors in terms of a Munsell chart. And so I think the phenomena that we were dealing with with ratio, where it can't simply be a perceptual phenomena because you have to, we believe that a ratio is the result of some kind of mental act. So that's why we added that to the definition. So you have this noticing as a kind of um, information selection interpretation and then working with that information in some way. Mm -hmm. So drawing on those different perspectives, you ended up with the framework where you have the centers of focus, as you mentioned. Then you have the focusing interactions, which you also mentioned. And then you have some mathematics-specific dimensions to your framework. You have the mathematical task. Yeah. And then you also have the nature of the mathematical activity, which is kind of like, I've, I sort of thought of this as like enveloping the whole thing. Because um, if you're in a classroom, for instance, you have the kind of nature of mathematical activity in that classroom, which you're kind of contending influences what students might notice or not notice. Yeah, so I want to say a word about each of the four components. Um, okay. So the inception of this focusing framework really came from this advisory board meeting that I mentioned. And after it was clear that, the, that those three very senior researchers didn't like focusing phenomena, I, I just threw away my agenda for the next day and, and had them help me think of an approach we should take. And that time we didn't have really the words for anything. But out of that, came a, with further development, came the focusing framework. And this centers of focus really was missing from the earlier focusing phenomena study. In the focusing phenomena study, the only individual component we had were those individual interviews that occurred during and after the unit. We didn't have a way of tracking the kids during class, what information they were selecting. So the centers of focus was a way of actually tracking individual kids. So this study was really influenced by a desire to coordinate um, 
individual aspects of noticing with the social organization of noticing. And the centers of focus was an attempt to look at what each individual kid was attending to. Then this focusing interactions really grew out of this concern from um, Paul, Anna, and Jim that we weren't adequately dealing with the sort of emergence and co-construction of what's noticed. And so by looking at it in terms of discourse, we could look at both um, student and teacher's participation in those discourse practices. And then the next two were really came from suggestions by Paul Cobb. He said, well, why don't you do a, you know, just a kind of narrative description of the participatory structures that are there that seem to be influencing attention focusing. And he suggested the term um, nature mathematical activity. I think in retrospect I could have you know, used his, the idea of a norm or maybe a kind of a focusing norm. But I wanted to honor his contribution, so I've always kept with that language that he had come up with. And then he also suggested the idea of um, looking at the importance and constraints of the task. And um, it's important to note methodologically that these really have different status. So most of our analytic time went into tracking the centers of focus and the focusing interactions. And the other two were much quicker and sort of more backgrounded. I'm speaking with Joanne Lobato about her article in JRME entitled Students' Mathematical Noticing. And I'll refer listeners to the article itself because there's actually a pretty detailed method section, which I appreciate very much. Um, but for the, the interview here, I was wondering if you could just briefly let us know about the setting and the participants just so that we can have a framework for interpreting the, uh, what you found. Well, you know, I'd actually like to um, talk about a couple things, global issues in the methods, because I think I was at a point in my career when we designed this study um, where I wanted to change some of the things that I'd been doing. So up to that point, I'd really seen myself as a researcher looking at student learning and transfer, and often had studies of small n, you know, teaching experiments, design experiments. And mm -hmm. I wanted to grow the method. So this also, this grant was funded at the time when the Institute of Educational Sciences had um, come out with guidelines for researchers where they were considering randomized clinical trials and experiments as the gold standard in educational research and tying the money to that, and this was sort of having a chilling effect on NSF. And at the time, it was getting grants was quite competitive through NSF as well. So I thought, kind of putting these ideas together, using a suggestion from um, Eamon Kelly, who had been my program officer at NSF when I had the career grant, he suggested that I go to the Pfizer pharmaceutical website and look at actually what their um, phases of research were. And I realized that this medical model that had been touted by people behind IES really didn't do it justice. They looked at this last stage of randomized clinical trials and didn't look at the previous three stages where you have things like dosing response studies. And so what I wanted to do was grow my method by using some kind of random assignment of kids to different treatments, which we did. We had we set up four after-school classes at a seventh grade 
and we, we did it in seventh grade because we wanted it to be the first exposure to linear functions. And I stuck with linear functions because this was basically a proof of concept of this framework and this approach, and so I wanted to pick a topic that I, that I knew something about and had had some previous success with. So we assigned kids. Now, we had a low, small n, so we really didn't have power there. But at least they started guarding against and controlling for certain things. So we had same time on task for each of the four teachers, same number of kids. Um, we controlled, we told them which major goals we wanted them to meet, even though they could meet them in different ways. But we set out three mathematical goals. So we were really trying to grow the method, yet retain a small enough end that we could look at the nature of reasoning, which is similar more to dosing response studies in ph the pharmaceutical model, is that you're, you're giving a dose and you're seeing what happens. You're not to the stage where you're quantifying everything. So that was one thing behind uh, our thinking. The, the other is that we really didn't believe that noticing was as simple instructionally as, here kids, look over here. And then they would look at, see that information that you wanted them to attend to. So mm -hmm. we didn't think we could engineer centers of focus. We thought they were going to be emergent. And that's why, emergent in the sense that you know, teaching and learning is a very complicated uh, phenomena. And it's not just what the teacher has in mind for the kids to attend to. Kids can say something that the teacher then reacts to in the moment. And it can set up a dynamic by which something gets attended to that wasn't it wasn't intentional on the teacher's part. So we wanted to have four classrooms um, to kind of hedge our bets and hope that we had a good contrast there somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and that happened. We ended up, just with the first two classes that we studied, really having pretty dramatic differences in the way the kids were reasoning on the post-instructional um, interviews. And here's where transfer was still really in my thinking, is that all the tasks we used were classic transfer tasks. Um, they covered the same content that the kids had had in the instruction on slope and linear functions, but they were set in different contexts than what the kids had had. So even though we don't mention that in the paper, um, you can still think of it in that way. Mm -hmm. And also there's a companion piece to the JRME piece that was published a year previous in the Journal of Learning Sciences at the end of 2012. This was with my same co-authors, Charles Pohensi and Rhoda Bodhamel. And what, it, what we did was when we compared two of these four classes in the interview findings, we found two major differences. One was that the class one kids really seemed to coordinate two quantities in a way that preserved the ratio um, in, in linear functions of the y equals mx case. Whereas all but three kids in the second class did so. So there, there was much more of an attention on non-multiplicative reasoning, non-proportional reasoning. And the second big finding was that when you got to graphs at the end of this, the, these were both 10-hour units. Um, when you got to graphs, the kids in class one were attending to the quantities uh, on each axis and what the points represented in terms of measurable things in the situation like distance and time if you're looking at a speed context, whereas the kids in class two completely ignored what was on the axis. Only one kid uh, accurately found the slope of a function 
and they were looking at boxes rather than um, quantities. And it's in the JLS paper that we use the focusing framework to explain that finding, where in the JRME paper we explain the first finding. So they're really companion pieces. If someone is interested in this one, they might be interested in the other one. But they're framed very differently. The Jeremy paper goes into the research on noticing, and the JLS paper frames it in terms of transfer. So it's called noticing as a plausible transfer mechanism. Mm -hmm. I don't remember my exact title, something like that. Uh huh. And you have both the interview data and then the classroom observations. And in Jeremy article, you spend more time really going into the classroom observations. So I was wondering if then you could kind of. Uh, give us a glimpse of what you did see happening in the classrooms in class one versus class yeah. two. So, um, you know, this is another thing before I, uh, I talk about a specific result. One reason why we wanted to do the comparisons, and by the way, you know, the <laughs> doing a paper where you're comparing two classes and you have a framework where you have four analytic passes for each class plus interviews is not for the faint of heart, right? It was actually very hard to get that into a, a reasonably linked paper. And what was interesting is one of the reviewers um, for the JRME paper said, why are you doing a comparison? Why don't you just study class one? Because this is where things, I guess, you know, the kids were a little more productive in terms of their reasoning on the um, interviews. But we made a strong argument to keep the comparison because I think especially for these, the last two components of the framework, the, the, the role of the tasks and the role of the nature of mathematical activity, are very hard to see unless you have a contrast. Whereas the first two, the centers of focus and the um, focus and interactions, are more analytic in nature, and you can do that kind of analysis on just a single classroom. But we felt that the comparison was really helpful. So one thing that I, I guess I found very interesting about the results came from the second class in particular. So again, we were trying to explain why it was that um, the kids in the second class, very few of them seemed to coordinate two quantities where that was all but one kid in the first class. And the first step was to see if there was a conceptual connection between that reasoning pattern and what the kids seemed to be attending to. So that was a connection between the centers of focus and the interview data. And we, we felt that we did establish that. And the main punchline there is that noticing is, is an analysis that's done at a more macro level. So in other words, it's not like you see a particular strategy in the classroom data that one kid has, and then they use exactly that strategy in the interview. It's more at a um, top-level view, like, okay, are these kids looking at two quantities, or are they really just focusing on one? And out of just focusing on one might come three different strategies, which is what we identified in the interview, but they're all rooted in this attention to a single quantity or additive growth in their um, classroom. So they really came to, to attend to the change in um, just a single quantity and not attend to the other quantity of equal status to that one. And so we think of noticing as being this um, conceptual rootstock, if you will, from which ideas form, but it's not looking at 
particular strategies being repeated, but more like a fundamental idea out of which different ideas can grow, or different strategies can grow, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. we did find that um, conceptually, the kids in class two, what they attended to, this additive growth, was linked to their reasoning patterns in the interview. And what was so fascinating was how that came about in the classroom. So teacher two um, was using a lot of patterning activities that I think are very popular. And what's really important for people to realize is that if you walked into class one versus class two, things looked very similar for the first few days. I mean, the, the reason we did these as after-school classes rather than regular um, classes is we wanted the teachers to, to feel free to focus on what they wanted to, what they thought was important mathematically. We didn't want them to feel the regular constraints of high stakes testing and so on. And both classes used physical materials, software, there was lots of explanation, justification of thinking. And in fact, even though the class started with these growing geometric patterns, and the kids, like we know from research, looked at, say, you know, if you have a, a patterns of toothpicks in an arrangement and each subsequent pattern gets bigger, kids are going to first notice how many more toothpicks in, say, the third one versus the second one. But mm -hmm. soon after that, um, two-thirds of the kids on their own started noticing a relationship between the number of objects in our toothpicks in a pattern, in a figure, and its ordinal placement. And this could have led to a multiplicative relationship. What's so interesting is the teacher, we looked at her notes at home. She was very careful. She, um, she was listening to what they were writing. In fact, she started the next day by putting their discovery up on the board. And then we could really identify this turning point as to where kids were starting to see this productive relationship between two quantities and where it started to go back to additive growth. And it was pretty stunning what happened, where she's trying to emphasize the kid's discovery, and then one kid says, yeah, but aren't you just going up by four each time? So he's back to additive growth. And then she says, oh, that's a really good idea. Yes, additive growth, it's just growth here. And she then names, renames, what was a multiplicative relationship as the growth, and it turns out it wasn't the, the growth. It, calculationally it was, the number was the same, but conceptually it wasn't. And from that point on, you see two utterances capturing the former multiplicative idea, but that's it, that's it. And then it mm -hmm. sort of goes underground, and there's a, an emphasis on additive growth, which is a real problem once you link slope to that, unless you're always gonna deal with functions where the change of x is one. And what was so incredible about this is, I remember years ago, I um, had gone on a trip to China and South Korea with our department chair, Dr. Sam Shen, who's from China. And he took two of my colleagues, Chris Rasmussen and Susan Nickerson there. We've done a number of research symposia in China and South Korea. And I think people were really shocked at this Rodney King story and didn't think it could have anything to do with math ed. And what was so incredible in this finding is that it was exactly the act of renaming. Just like the police expert had renamed Rodney King's movements as aggression, this teacher renamed something as growth 
And that brought in this whole network of meanings that had accumulated during days one and two of the unit that brought back this idea of, oh, just find a difference in one quantity. And so I really thought that there were, um, even though I understand that the Rodney King example is very highly charged emotionally and politically, there really was a sort of culture that developed in this classroom. And I saw fascinating similarities between the two that I didn't expect to see going into this. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating, too, to, to be able to identify a moment like that and then re- you know follow through after that. It's like, wow, that really sort of shifted attention back to a place that they had a chance to move beyond and then compare that to the other classroom, where the other classroom, they did pretty successfully move on towards looking multiplicatively at the relationship between the quantities. Yeah, that's right. And But you're pointing to something that I think is really important if somebody would like to, to take this framework and use it in their own work, which I, of course, would love to see, is you know, there are a number of people, I think, that are grappling with how to bring together these traditions of an individual cognitive focus and sort of a social collective focus. And um, my colleague, Chris Rasmussen, also had a grant looking at this coordination. And when we compare notes, he usually starts with looking at collective emergent mathematical practices in the classroom and then looks at individuals. And we go the other direction. I think both are legitimate, but I think they have four different things. And one thing that help, was helpful to us methodologically is, um, I want to just throw this out as a pointer in case anybody wants to use this framework, is if you start with the interview results, you kind of know more what to look for in a class. So we knew we were looking for this, this notion of coordinating two quantities versus additive growth as being important. And that helps you in the classroom data, which can be pretty overwhelming to deal with when we had 10 hours of classroom data for both classes. And then we started with the individual centers of focus so we could look at shifts. And then once we had a shift, say in class one, from um, looking at uh, two quantities but not coordinating them multiplicatively to then beginning to coordinate them multiplicatively, we knew we wanted to look at the focusing interactions right there. And similarly in class two, when we saw the kids going from this coordination back to only accounting for one quantity, we wanted to account for that. And that really helped us reduce the classroom data and be uh, more targeted in our analysis for the discourse practices. Mm -hmm. My guest is Joanne Lobato from San Diego State University. Um, Joanne, thanks so much for talking about your work and giving some of the historical background and some of the insights. I felt like I was, you know, saw some of the discussions that were happening at your project meetings uh, leading up to this article, so that's always really interesting to hear about. I have one more question that I'd like to ask you, and it's actually quite a bit different. This is uh, my question that comes from my friend Aaron Brackenecki, but it is, if you were not in math education as your career, what would you see yourself doing? As a career or if I was retired? If you had, you could just take it as if you had a lot more time on your hands. What are some, some non-math <laughs> okay. ed things that you might be doing with that time? So I would probably do more volunteering. I currently um, am pretty active in a group called Love on a Leash, which is a therapy dog group. I have a oh. four-year-old Samoyed, which is a sled type of sled dog. And we go and visit um, nursing homes and reading programs. We go to libraries and kids read to the dogs. 
which is supposed to kind of help them get over any kind of sense of being judged for their reading and um, just practice reading. So I would probably do more of that. And then a few years back, before I got too busy, I used to be a very active potter and throw ceramics, and I'd like to return to that. Oh, wow. So very interesting. I probably would do non-math ed things, <laughs> even though I enjoyed doing this kind of research, but there's other things out there, too. Yeah, instead of uh, digging your brain into the data, you can just dig your hands into some clay, right? <laughs> Joanne, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your work. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.